Jai Namacharya Shilohidas Thakur Ki Jai Prem Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunitananda Shri Dvaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gora Bhaktivrinda Ki Jai Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhan Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Lakura Dhamma Ki Jai Nabhadweep Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Dhanamaya Juna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakta Vrindaki Jai Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale. Sri Mate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane. Namaste Sarasvati Deve. Goravani Bacharani Nivasesis Nivali Paskatyade Satarani. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utapadakamalam Shri Guru and Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sagana Raganatam Bitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Bitamscha Banchakapa Chubischa Kipasan to be able to teach a non-pavanavi or Vaishnavi Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's the 6th of January 2021 in Hawaii over the internet and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4. Chapter 24, Chanting the Song Sung by Lord Shiva, Text 18. Atmaramo Piyastvasya Loka Kalpasya Radase Sakya Yukto Vicharati Goraya Bhagavan Bhavaha Please chant. Self-satisfied. Self-satisfied. A pee. A pee. Although he is. Yaha. One who is. Two. But. Asya. Asya. This. This. Loka. Loka. Material world. Material world. Kalpasya. Kalpasya. When manifested. When manifested. Radhase. For the matter of helping its existence. For the matter of helping its existence. Sakya. Potencies. Potencies. Yuktaha. Being engaged. Being charity. He acts. He acts. Goraya. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Bhagavan. His lordship. His lordship. Bhavaha. Shiva. Shiva. 
Srila Prabhupada's translation, Lord Shiva, the most powerful demigod, second only to Lord Vishnu, is self-sufficient. Although he has nothing to aspire for in the material world, for the benefit of those in the material world, he is always busily engaged everywhere and is accompanied by his dangerous energies like Goddess Kali and Goddess Durga. It almost sounds like they're two different people, but Kali and Durga are two manifestations of the same person. Srila Prabhupada's purport, Lord Shiva is known as the greatest devotee of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. He is known as the best of all types of Vaishnavas, Vaishnavanam Yita Shambhu. Consequently, Lord Shiva has a Vaishnava Sampradaya, the disciplic succession known as the Rudra Sampradaya. Just as there is a Brahma Sampradaya coming directly from Lord Brahma, the Rudra Sampradaya comes directly from Lord Shiva. Lord Shiva is one of the twelve great personalities as stated in Srimad Bhagavatam 6.3.20. Swayambhur Narada Shambhu Kumara Kapilom Manu Pralado Janako Bhishma Balar Vyasakir Vayam. There are twelve great authorities in preaching God consciousness. The name Shambhu means Lord Shiva. His disciplic succession is also known as the Vishnu Swami Sampradaya, and the current Vishnu Swami Sampradaya is also known as the Balaba Sampradaya. The current Brahma Sampradaya is known as the Madhvagodiya Sampradaya. Even though Lord Shiva appeared in the form of Sankaracharya to preach Mayavada philosophy, at the end of his pastimes as Sankaracharya, he preached the Vaishnava philosophy, Bajagovindam, 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 Mudamate. He stressed worshipping Lord Krishna or Govinda three times in this verse and especially warned his followers that they could not possibly achieve deliverance or mukti simply by word jugglery and grammatical puzzles. If one... Grammatical puzzles sounds like, you know, a game. <laughs> if one is actually serious to attain mukti, he must worship Lord Krishna. That is Sri Sankaracharya's last instruction. Herein it is mentioned that Lord Shiva is always accompanied by his material energy, Shakta Guraya. Material energy, Goddess Durga or Goddess Kali, is always under his control. Goddess Kali and Durga serve him by killing all the asuras or demons. Sometimes Kali becomes so infuriated that she indiscriminately kills all kinds of asuras. There is a popular picture of Goddess Kali in which she wears a garland composed of the heads of the asuras and holds in her left hand a captured head and in her right hand a great kanda. Kanda. Kadga. Kadga. A great kadga or chopper for killing asuras. Great wars are symbolic representations of Kali's devastation of the asuras and are actually conducted by the goddess Kali. Woo! Let's read that sentence again. Great wars are symbolic representations of Kali's devastation of the asuras and are actually conducted by the goddess Kali. So we have great wars. The goddess Kali is out there on the battlefield. Shristi Stiti Pralayasadana Shaktireka, Brahma Samhita 544. Asuras try to pacify the goddess Kali or Durga by worshipping her in material opulence, but when the Asuras become too intolerable, goddess Kali does not discriminate in killing them wholesale. Well, they worship her and she just kills them anyway. Asuras do not know the secret of the energy of Lord Shiva and they prefer to worship Kali or Durga or Lord Shiva for material benefit. Due to their demoniac character, they are reluctant to surrender to Lord Krishna 
as indicated by Bhagavad Gita 7.15, Namam Duskritino Mudaha, Prapadyante Niradamaha, Maya Paritagyana Asuram Bhavamashritaha. Lord Shiva's duty is very dangerous because he has to employ the energy of Goddess Kali or Durga. In another popular picture, the Goddess Kali is sometimes seen standing on the prostrate, prostrate body of Lord Shiva, which indicates that sometimes Lord Shiva has to fall down flat in order to stop Goddess Kali from killing the Asuras. Since Lord Shiva controls the great material energy, Goddess Durga, worshippers of Lord Shiva attain very opulent positions within this material world. Under Lord Shiva's direction, a worshipper of Lord Shiva gets all kinds of material facilities. In contrast, a Vaishnava, a worshipper of Lord Vishnu, gradually becomes poorer in material possessions. Because Lord Vishnu does not trick his devotees into becoming materially entangled by possessions. Lord Vishnu gives his devotees intelligence from within, as stated in Bhagavad Gita 10.10, To those who are constantly devoted and worship me with love, I give the understanding by which they can come to me. Thus Lord Vishnu gives intelligence to his devotee so that the devotee can make progress on the path back home, back to Godhead. Since the devotee has nothing to do with any kind of material possession, he does not come under the control of Goddess Kali or the Goddess Durga. That, that's also interesting. Since a devotee has nothing to do with any kind of material possession, he does not come under the control of Goddess Kali or the Goddess Durga. Lord Shiva is also in charge of the Tamaguna, or the mode of ignorance in this material world. His potency, the Goddess Durga, is described as keeping all living entities in the darkness of ignorance. Yadevi Sarvabhuteshu Nidram Rupam Samstita. Both Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva are incarnations of Lord Vishnu, but Lord Brahma is in charge of the creation, whereas Lord Shiva is in charge of the destruction, which he carries out with the help of his material energy, Goddess Kali or Goddess Durga. Thus, in this verse, Lord Shiva is described as being accompanied by dangerous potencies, Shaktya Goraya, and that is the actual position of Lord Shiva. It's quite a long purport. Atmaramo Piastwasya Loko Kalpasyarahase Shakta Yukto Vicharati Goraya Bhagavan Bhavaha. Lord Shiva, the most powerful demigod, second only to Lord Vishnu, is self sufficient. Although he has nothing to aspire for in the material world, for the benefit of those in the material world, he is always busily engaged everywhere and is accompanied by his dangerous energies like Goddess Kali and Goddess Durga. So, Atma Arama. Rama means pleasure. Uh, he takes pleasure in himself. Lord Shiva doesn't need anything outside of himself for pleasure. That's actually, of course, the position of all living entities. All living entities, Krishna says, you can be satisfied in the self. And Krishna says, for one who is fully satisfied in the self, for him there is no duty. So, for one who has everything, if you don't need anything, then you have nothing to do. I mean, even if we, we want to think of this in a very mundane way, so if somebody, you know, they get some big inheritance or whatever, they win the lottery, you know, and they're, they don't need anything. They have everything, then they don't have to work. Right? As soon as people win the lottery, they often quit their job. You know, why do I have to work if I have everything that I need? 
Of course, materially, it's not quite like that. But spiritually, when one feels satisfied in the self, then one doesn't have any duty to do in the world. One doesn't have to get any necessities. The only duty one has to do is to serve the Lord. Of course, serving the Lord may involve doing something in the world, and that is exactly the situation for Lord Shiva. Lord Shiva is doing something in the world. Uh, Loka can mean the planets or the people. Not because he needs to for himself, but as a service to the Lord out of love. I mean, we all uh, do things out of love that we don't need to do. That's not necessary. Like yesterday I sent a, a book to both each of my sons, sent the same book to each of my sons, as an educational book of maps for the grandchildren. So I didn't need to do that. I wasn't required to do that. I did it just because I love them and I want to do something for them. We all do things like that. We all do things uh, just simply out of affection, simply out of love. There's nothing else uh, pushing us except for that. Of course, in this world, that tends not to be a pure thing. So we may also be acting because we want the other people to approve of us or we want them to give us some sort of something in return, uh, something subtle or something gross in return. But we have some concept like this of giving something just to give, uh, just for the happiness of the others, just for the pleasure of giving without uh, needing to get anything at all in return. Yeah, when people give to charity, it's often like that. You know, we just had the, the Christmas season when people especially give to charity. And, you know, all of our social media, every day there were so many advertisements for different charities. You know, the people in Yemen are starving and these people are starving and these people have a medical problem and these people have this problem and that problem. And, you know, would you please, would you give something? And, of course, when you give to these organizations, uh, what do you get? You get the pleasure of giving. I mean, you often don't even know exactly what person you're helping in what way, right? And just you're enjoying the aspect of giving for its own sake. So Lord Shiva is acting like this as the greatest Vaishnava in what does Prabhupada say, the best of all types of Vaishnavas. That's a whole other discussion, who was the best Vaishnava. Uh, that's, of course, the topic of Brihad Bhagavatamrita Part 1. Uh, but just this, this love of giving... When Krishna says to the gopis, I cannot repay you, you can be satisfied by your own service. It's this mood that the act of loving the Lord is sufficient. There's, there's, there's nothing else required. Just the fact of being in love and giving love is enough. So Lord Shiva is acting in the world as a service to the Lord for the benefit of all living entities. He has nothing to achieve for himself, uh, whatever he does, like when we do things out of love, we do them to benefit the other person. Right? I'm thinking, oh, this is a nice book about maps that it will be useful for my grandchildren in their studies. They'll be able to learn something. I'm thinking that I want to benefit them. I want to do some good for them. So when we act out of love instead of out of compulsion, it means we're thinking about benefit. Of course, Lord Shiva is very interesting because uh, some of the things Lord Shiva does is very clearly beneficial and some of the things Lord Shiva does appear to be harmful. Yeah? So, well, let's first look at the things that appear to be harmful. So, Shiva Prabhupada's 
giving uh, two examples. So one example is Lord Shiva who appears as the great Acharya, Shankar Acharya, and in that manifestation, Lord Shiva was preaching impersonalism. He was preaching Advaita Vadi. And because he's Lord Shiva, he was able to preach impersonalism very convincingly. I mean, even though the, what he was saying philosophically is illogical. And we were just reading this in Chaitanya Charitamrita yesterday, that the impersonalists will they'll say one thing in one place, and in another place they say something that contradicts what they said in the first place. And, right? It, it's not a very cogent or cohesive philosophy. And it, it actually, philosophically speaking, is, is quite easy to defeat. It's, it's not that difficult. I mean, I'll give you a simple example. I've given this example before, that uh, at, soon after I moved into the ashram permanently the, in ISKCON, a few months afterwards, within the first year for sure, so Srila Prabhupada started translating Chaitanya Charitamrita, and the BBT published a book called Lord Chaitanya in Five Features, which was uh, just Adi Lila uh, chapter 7. Just, just that one chapter was published uh, considerably before the rest of Chaitanya Charitamrita. It was at least, I think, a year before. And this was the conversation between Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Prakasananda Sarasvati. Prakasananda Sarasvati was propounding the Advaita Vadi philosophy of Sankaracharya, and Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu defeated him, and defeated him in a very practical way that Prakasananda Sarasvati and all of his followers became followers of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Uh, we don't see this happen so much at the present time in 2021. You can defeat somebody philosophically, and they don't even know that you defeated them, or what to speak of surrendering to you and becoming your disciple. I mean, like, forget it. You know, they won't even admit defeat. I mean, we have a president who won't even admit defeat, what to speak of uh, anybody else. But even among devotees, we have like that. You know, where people just, they, they won't admit defeat. They don't even understand what it means that they've been defeated. Huh? So, anyway, this was a little different 500 years ago, but people had some training and they could understand, oh, I've been defeated in, in logic, I've been defeated in philosophy, I have to submit. Anyway, so I was going through that chapter in, in great depth, and I was practically speaking, memorizing it, uh, something I can't do quite as well now in my old age as I could when I was 18. So there Srila Prabhupada is giving in the purports, like really taking it beyond the verses and going deeply into this is the argument that the followers of Sankracharya make, and here is the counter-argument from the Vaishnavas. So it was really, really clear. And uh, it was a Sunday feast, and this one gentleman, Indian gentleman, was at the Sunday feast, and we were sitting down taking prasadam, and he started speaking impersonal philosophy, Sankracharya's philosophy, and I was able to answer each of his points, just by remembering Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's points and Srila Prabhupada's points. I mean, it was, it was as if he just knew all the points from the, the same points that Prabhupada had said that the impersonalists make. It, it, it was as if that we had read the same chapter and, you know, we were almost 
like doing a drama, and he was saying all the parts <laughs> from the impersonalist, and I just had to counter with the parts from the personalist. Anyway, I remember at the end of that conversation, he looked at me, so, you know, I was 18 years old. I, I don't think I was initiated yet, maybe. Maybe newly initiated. And he said, wow, you're the most intelligent person I've ever met. And I said, this is not my intelligence. This is the intelligence of my spiritual master, Shiva Prabhupada. And I was, uh, it was very obvious to me that, that that was the case. I was just repeating. Uh, it, it, was, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience. Uh, uh, so my point is that even a beginner in spiritual life could defeat, I mean, I was hardly chanting Hare Krishna for a few months. I was 18 years old, you know, from the Western culture. And I was able to easily defeat uh, my Vada philosophy. And I found that when I went, when I was in book distribution also, it was very, very easy to defeat impersonal philosophy. It's not at all difficult. So why is it that so many highly intelligent people take up the philosophy of Sankaracharya? Because it's Lord Shiva. And as Lord Shiva, he's able to bewilder people. Now you might say, why would Lord Shiva do that? You know, he doesn't have any personal compulsion to do anything. He's Atma-Arama. He's not doing anything for himself. And he's a beneficial personality. He's the greatest Vaishnava. He cares paradukaduki, right? He cares about the welfare of everyone. Suridam Sarvadehinam, he's the best friend of all living entities. So why would he preach undifferentiated, undifferentiated monism? You know, this is the religion of the demons. I, I really found it interesting in Sadaputa's book, uh, Our Late God Brother, uh, Alien Identities, and he's recounting people's interaction with alien beings. And he, one of the things he found that he said surprised him was the demoniac beings. Some people had association with uh, more angelic beings. But those who had association with the demoniac beings that those demoniac beings were preaching impersonalism. It's the religion of the demons. And that's why when Krishna kills the demons, they merge into the Brahma Jyoti, because they want to merge into the Brahma Jyoti. That's their aspiration. Uh, of course, Lord Shiva is the master of the demons. He's in charge of them. Somebody's got to be in charge of them. He's the master of the ghosts and the hobgoblins and the demons and, and so forth. But he was preaching the religion of the demons. Why? How did that benefit anybody? So it benefited people because people had been using religion as an excuse for violence. As Narada told Vyasadeva, if you say that something is allowed under certain circumstances, people will then think, oh, it's a good thing. And so by allowing animal sacrifices under certain circumstances, people were thinking, well, animal killing is part of religion. And, of course, we see this phenomenon today in the various religions of the world where people think that animal killing is, is part of their religion and eating meat is part of their religion. And they get together for their Christmas dinner to, and they eat dead animals. <laughs> you know? And so uh, the Shaktivesa avatar, the Lord, came as Buddha, who said, you know, don't follow these religious uh, injunctions about animal killing, that ahimsa is a higher value. And in order to have people throw out the scriptures, he threw out religion entirely. Of course, Buddhism in various forms is now extremely popular in the world.
So Lord Shiva wanted to reestablish the Vedas, but because people were already firmly embedded in this uh, voidus and impersonal understanding, he used their understanding and said, you know, you don't, you didn't really need to throw out the Vedas because the way you're understanding things is in the Vedas. You, know, you, can, you can do that. <laughs> so it was a way of reestablishing the Vedas. And therefore it was benefiting people. You know, often when a person's not acting properly, you may have to take them through steps to get there where they want to, where they need to be. You may not necessarily be able to take a person immediately to where they have to go. You know, all right, well, let, let's take this step. Well, let's take this step. And the steps in and of themselves, the steps in and of themselves may not be good. You know, like Prabhupada said, if you're addicted to alcohol, you can think of Krishna as the taste of your alcohol. So it's not that we want to go around drinking alcohol and meditating on how Krishna is the taste of the alcohol. But it's a step. For that person, it's a step up. Or like Prabhupada would sometimes say to people, if you want to eat animals, then just don't eat cows. You know, eat goats. So it, we're not propagating goat eating, but for people who are eating cows, that's a step up. Okay, I'm going to not eat cows. I'm going to eat goats. Mm-hmm. So the, again, the step up in and of itself may not be something beneficial. The step in and of itself may still be sinful. But for that person in that circumstances, it may be something good. Or like Narada Muni who said to Magrari, well, if you're going to kill animals, at least kill them completely. Don't kill them just halfway. You know, it's not that Narada Muni was propagating that people should become hunters. Now, Srila Prabhupada points out, as he often does, that Sankaracharya also wrote this Bajagovindam prayer. Uh, I have a wonderful recording by Ms. Subalakshmi of Bajagovinda. And uh, I, every time I listen to it, I tell myself that I want to memorize it, but I haven't, and I probably won't. But it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, wonderful song. Very deep. And he says, you know, you just take a little Ganga water every day, read one verse of the Bhagavad Gita. You know, it, it, anyway, it's wonderful. And, and Prabhupada said he's saying three times, uh, he's saying over and over again in this prayer, uh, you fools, mudhamate, you're a fool. Uh, just your philosophy is not going to be enough. You have to fall in love with the Lord. Now, the other way that Prabhupada mentions in this purport that Lord Shiva is doing benefit without looking like he's doing benefit is in how he's working with his energy, his shakya, goraya, even the Sanskrit word, goraya, like gory, you know, dangerous. So he's working with these dangerous energy, and uh, he's the master of this dangerous energy, uh, who is, uh, appears sometimes as Durga and sometimes as Kali, of course, she can also appear in a much more pleasant form as Parvati, as Sati. Uh, but uh, Lord Shiva, he's in, in employing Kali to kill, and to kill horribly. I mean, wars. Prabhupada's making this statement about wars, right? What does he say here again? He says that they're conducted by the goddess Kali. You know, so people... People are thinking that the war is conducted by, you know, General Eisenhower or whatever. What was that big Nazi guy? In North Africa. Oh. 
I used to know all this stuff. When I taught Gurukul and I taught world history, I used to know all that. Uh, it starts with an R. Anyway, so they, they think these big generals, that they're the ones conducting the, the war, you know, Patton or... Uh, was it MacArthur, I think, who landed in the Philippines? And, uh, you know, that they're, they're, it's they're the ones, but actually it's Goddess Kali who's conducting the wars. Truly, everything that's happening in this world is being conducted by demigods, uh, higher beings. It's explained many times in the Bhagavatam that the demigods are controlling our senses. Uh, in the 10th canto, chapter 14, Lord Brahma's talking about how the demigods are enjoying the sense activities of living entities, and when the living entities in Vrindavan are engaging their senses in devotional service, the demigods are also uh, doing that. So that was, that was really lovely. But everything with our body, with our senses, with our mind, all of nature, the growth of plants, the movements of the planets, everything, is all being controlled by different higher entities who are all servants of the Lord. And we're thinking, you know, we're thinking we're the only doer, but that's just foolishness. So people are thinking, and we're declaring war for this reason or that reason. We're declaring war because, I don't know, we want to keep slaves, or we want to get oil, or, you know, we want to conquer the world and make it, you know, a heaven on earth, the third Reich that's going to be a heaven on earth, or whatever reasons they're thinking that they're, they're having a war. But they're not realizing that the energy of Kali is conducting everything, conducted. And you can think of a musical symphony where there's a conductor, right? So, I mean, they have to be the instrument players. You have to have the, uh, the cello and the bass and the violins and the drums and the tubas and you know, all the different instruments. You have the wind instruments and the percussion instruments and the st- string instruments. And you've got the first violinist, second violinist, and they've got to play, and you have to have a composer that they're reading from, but you have the person conducting. So Kali's conducting it. Kill this person! (laughs) Cut off this person's arm. Blind this person. And uh, it's, it's interesting here, Prabhupada's saying, that the Asuras think, well, Kali's so powerful, Durga's so powerful, let's worship her, and she'll share her power with us. And she does. Uh, but then she's like, oh, forget you guys, and cuts off their heads. I mean, this is the epitome for us of, of really nasty people. You know, people we serve, we, we do things for them, and then they turn on us and they stab us in the back. Of course, the demons who are worshiping Kali are not doing it out of friendship or love. They're, they're trying to get something from her. They're trying to use her. And then she turns around like, <laughs> forget about you. Of course, we have that really horrific uh, story, really ghastly story of Jed Bharat, where these Dacoids do uh, their own made-up sacrifice, not in the scripture, where they're going to kill a person and they think they're going to kill you know, some incompetent, uh, disabled person. They don't realize that they've, they're attacking a great Vaishnava. Anyway, so they get him, and, uh, you know, they're going to kill him, and instead Kali jumps out of the deity, and she's there with her associates, witches, nasty beings, and they, they cut off the heads of these dacoids. 
and they're they're throwing the severed heads around like balls, and they're drinking the blood out of the, out of the severed heads. Like Kali, it doesn't. Prabhupada says there that Kali's a vegetarian because she's Vaishnavi, uh, but she she gives the blood to these witches. You can you could drink that. So this is the the kind of worship that the demons do. So this doesn't appear beneficial. I mean, just like Sankaracharya preaching impersonalism, it, it appears that it's it's a negative thing. You know, killing your worshippers and conducting major wars, uh, great wars, as Prabhupada says here. Uh, but it's cleaning. It's cleaning, you know. Clean your kitchen and get rid of all the cockroaches. <laughs> yeah, you're cleaning. You're getting, getting rid of the, pulling out the weeds. If you have, uh, like we have a problem here in the warm weather with poison ivy and uh, poison oak, poison sumac. So you're, if you're going to be killing poison ivy, that's a good thing. Right, the devotees built a little Govardhan Hill replica and there was all this poison ivy around there. So it may appear that it's ghastly, that it's horrible, that it's you know, dangerous, killing we were discussing with one of our Bhakti Shastri students the concept where Krishna says that the soul cannot be killed, the soul cannot kill. And we, we had that as a debate question on our exam, and so I was working with one devotee who was, needed some extra, wanted some extra uh, guidance. And I was saying, you know, there are times when it's okay to kill. It's like right before this class I was killing some bugs on a Tulsi plant. Yes, so it may appear horrible. I'm killing the bugs with a soap and water spray. It is horrible. But it's beneficial. It's beneficial. It's in the worship of Tulsi, or it's for the benefit of the earth to clear out these people. It's, and it's actually benefiting everybody. It's even benefiting the Asuras that they're, they're out of that body and they're not uh, causing... Uh, has so much trouble. Right. All right, and then we have a way in which Lord Shiva is very obviously, clearly acting for the benefit of the world, and that is where he's acting as guru. So Prabhupada's talking about Brahma and Shiva each having their sampradayas. Of course, we are in the sampradaya coming from Brahma, and Prabhupada talks about how that coming from Lord Shiva, there's the Vishnu Sampradaya, Vishnu Swami Sampradaya, and the Balava Sampradaya are all originally coming from Lord Shiva. So there Lord Shiva is, is teaching Vaishnavism. He's teaching how to worship the Lord, and in fact, he's just about to do this in the Bhagavatam with the Prachetas. And before we have this wonderful, beautiful, poetic, inspiring song by Lord Shiva, one of my favorite parts of the Bhagavatam, this prayer by Lord Shiva, chanting the song sung by Lord Shiva, Lord Shiva's song. Uh, there's a little description of Lord Shiva himself. So not only is, is this for the Rudra Sampradaya, but all of us who are reading the Bhagavatam are benefiting, and there's a, a number of, of course, places in the Bhagavatam that involve Lord Shiva. We have Lord Shiva drinking the ocean of poison, him fighting with the, the Tripura, the three cities created by Maya, with Lord Shiva fighting on the side of Banasura with the Shiva Jwara and the Narayana Jwara weapon, 
And I'm sure there's other instances as well. On the shore of the ocean of milk, I think wordship is also there. So there's, there's other, uh, with the Daksha Yagya, um, make a list of all of the Lord Shiva pastimes in the Bhagavatam. Uh, one second, I need to get this. Hello? Uh, yes, you can, except that I'm right now giving an online international class. Would you be willing to call me back in 15 minutes when it's over? Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. It'll end at 12 o'clock. Sorry, I needed to get that call. Uh, so we get a lot of benefit from Lord Shiva. That Lord Shiva is teaching us how to worship the Lord. He's teaching us how to worship Krishna. He's giving us these wonderful things to meditate on. And if we want the direct benefit from Lord Shiva, then we should approach him in that way. There is some indirect, step-by-step benefit from dealing with Sankaracharya. Like Prabhupada says in the last purport to the 12th, canto, 12th chapter sorry, of the Bhagavad Gita, that impersonalism is good until you've met a pure devotee. And, you know, there's some benefit, I suppose, to clearing out the asuras from the planet. But if we want to have the best benefit from Lord Shiva, we should approach him in his mood as a Vaishnava, as we should approach his energies in, in her mood, Vaishnavi. We shouldn't be approaching her as Kali or as Durga. But we should be approaching her as Vaishnavi. And Prabhupada talks about worshipping the power and the powerful side by side. So we are very much uh, thankful to Vaishnavi, the material energy, that we can engage so much of the material energy in Krishna's service. And we're very grateful to Lord Shiva for these wonderful songs and, and prayers and pastimes upon which we can meditate. And when we approach these great demigods as Vaishnavas, then they are very happy and Krishna is very happy. When we approach them as gurus, when we approach them as independent gods, or when we try to get some benef- benediction from them, that Krishna doesn't want us to get, you know, like the person when the mother says no and the, the child, they go to the father, or the father says no, the child goes to the mother. Then the demigods are not pleased and Krishna is not pleased. Uh, and the benefit is, is, is slow or partial, etc. But when we approach Lord Shiva as Vaishnava Yatasambhu, when we approach him as the greatest Vaishnava and learn from him, then he acts as guru, he's acting as sadhu he's acting as Vaishnava and it becomes sadhu sangha not just sadhu sangha but the best sadhu sangha and we can certainly attain to Krishna Prema so questions, comments, additions, subtractions chastisements Anybody? Yeah. Somehow the Mayan, I can't tell where the 
voices are coming from. Anyway, um, not a, in relationship to that point, um, just within the three modes of material nature, we're not obviously talking about transcendence, but within this material world, people are conducted uh, by the gunas. You know, sometimes you can find atheists uh, that have qualities like integrity and charity and, and compassion. It appears to be, whereas those that are uh, proclaimed theists, you know, that have you know, drunk the blood of Jesus and are born again, they're outside of their church. They're the most intolerant, selfish people you come in contact with. Um, so you would think that if somebody is an atheist, that they would only have uh, qualities in the mode outside the mode of goodness. And those that would least believe in God, then they would not have such an uh, exaggeration of uh, qualities in the mode of ignorance. Well, Lord Kapiladeva in the third canto describes that bhakti can be performed in any of the modes. So there are certainly people in the mode of ignorance who are performing bhakti in the mode of ignorance. And we know that the Kanista Adhikaris, according to the 11th canto, they only see God in the temple. They don't know how to treat other devotees. They don't even know how to recognize devotees. What to speak of recognizing a devotee from a somewhat different religion. So they, they don't know how to treat others. And, you know, in their church, in their mosque, in their temple, whatever, they may appear to behave nicely, but as soon as they go to deal with other people, then they are envious. And they can even kill them. <laughs> You know, I'm a Shuni Muslim, you're a Shiite Muslim, and I'll kill you. So this is a very low level of Kanista Adhikari. This is people who, Lord Kapilasev said, they're separatists. He said it's like they're making offerings to ashes. So uh, they're still devotees, but they're functioning at a very low level, and we're advised not to be intimately associated with them. Uh, Prabhupada sometimes gives the examples of the Sahajiyas, that we respect them as devotees, they're chanting the name of the Lord, they accept Krishna as the Supreme Lord, but we don't become their intimate associate because they're not a very high character. Eventually they'll become, if they stay in bhakti, eventually, may take some lifetimes, but eventually they'll become. Now when you talk about demons, demons can be in any of the modes also, and demons who are interested in impersonalism and the Brahman can be transcendental. They can be above the modes of material nature, but their main purpose is that they want to worship themselves. Now, anyone in the modes of nature, whether you're an atheist or a theist, you're going to uh, jettison your good qualities if you're fearful enough. And I've talked about this many times, that if we feel threatened enough, we get rid of our good qualities. I mean, why do most of us lose our good qualities if we're super hungry and, or super tired? You know, our body goes into this self-preservation mode. Right? Biologically speaking, if you're really thirsty, you're really hungry, you're really tired, you have to take care of yourself, otherwise you're going to die. And so the body's programmed that if there's extreme thirst or extreme hunger or extreme fatigue or sickness, that the, the brain is programmed to become extremely selfish. Again, you know, if you didn't do that, you would die. I mean, we have a counterexample of Ranti Dave who was very hungry and very thirsty, I don't know if he was tired, 
and he was able to think about the welfare of others. But that's extremely unusual. And I think we all see in our own life that if we're sick, we're hungry, we're tired, we're thirsty, we, we lose some of our capacity to think about others. Why? Because we go into self-preservation mode. Uh, biologically, that may be an imperative. But spiritually, a person who knows that they're not this body, I mean, of course, we have the example of Pericket, who that happened to. But one who knows that we're not this body, uh, they don't fall into this extreme selfishness, like Ranti Dave, even if they're in danger, or like uh, Maharaj Ambarish. Even if they are in danger, they're still able to think of the welfare of others because they know that they're never in any kind of real danger. But as long as anyone's identifying with this world, even in the mode of goodness, there's going to be some level at which they become fearful and at which their own self-preservation supersedes any of their good qualities. That's, that happens pretty much to everybody. And that can happen if people are insulted. You know, an insult is also a kind of threat. And in the Bhagavatam, we find that the warriors insult each other before a battle because it's one of the ways you get people to fight is to insult them. So, you know, if we feel that we're insulted or disrespected, then we may also give up our good qualities and just go towards self-preservation. And that, to what extent we do that, depends on to what extent we're covered by the modes. If you're in the mode of ignorance, you do that very easily. Somebody just bumps you accidentally when you're walking and you're ready to kill them, you know. If you're in passion, it takes a little bit more, and if you're in goodness, it takes a lot. Uh, you know, it takes a lot to, to do that. But anyway, the, the demons can also be in the higher modes. There's this uh, subterranean heavenly planets for pious demons. Krishna is, is very dependable, Rupa Goswami says. If you follow the rules, even if you're a demon, you can go to these subterranean heavenly planets. You can merge into the Brahman. Krishna's not envious. We don't have a view of God that, you know, if you love God, then you get heaven, and if you don't love God, you have to go to hell. It's not like that. You know, even if you're a devotee, if you do something wrong, Krishna will, will still punish you. And if you're a demon and you do something right, you follow the laws, uh, then you get to go to heaven. Yes. Mahalakshmi is saying that uh, worshippers of Lord Shiva become wealthy, powerful, and Kali has to kill them. It's very shocking. It is very shocking. That's what it says in this verse. These shocking energies. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> you know, dangerous energies. You're playing with, with something dangerous. And you're playing with, with something... You know, they're worshipping Lord Shiva selfishly. They're not worshipping. It's not loving. So I am... The, this person does have to call me back in a couple minutes. It's something important. If I could take maybe one more question, if someone else has a question... Yeah, I do. Yes. So, Prabhupada's Pranami is Nirvishesvinyavadi. He's come to defeat uh, the Vedantic uh, monism. Plus, you know, as Shankaracharya uh, drove Buddhism out of India, Prabhupada's defeating it globally. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I would like you to just give us a few points that you brought up in your early Krishna consciousness to defeat the, 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 the Indian monistic points. I don't, I, don't have that, I don't have that memorized anymore. Uh, that was some kind of special Shakti for the day. I would just suggest that you read Adi 7. 
you know, I mean, there, uh, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Srila Prabhupada outline exactly, this is the argument of the impersonalists, this is the counter-argument. I mean, one of them, we are sure we all know, is that they say that we are Brahman covered by Maya, and that means Maya is stronger than Brahman. Also, if you say that Maya covers part of Brahman, then there's two, Brahman and Maya. And they're saying there's only one, there's only Brahman. So those are some very obvious uh, ones. So you said chapter 7? Yeah, Adi Lila chapter 7. What did you say? You should uh, uh, see where Prabhupada summarizes these points where? It's in, it's in one purport after another. It's where uh, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is talking to Prakasananda Sarasvati, and you see the arguments okay. of Prakasananda, the, the counter-arguments of Lord Chaitanya, and then in the purport, Srila Prabhupada takes it further. And she's getting, you know, the impersonalists say this, this is our answer, the impersonalists say this, this is our answer. I like that. Okay. And at the time I had it memorized, but that was a long time ago. I no longer have it memorized. All right, I do think I need to go. Thank you very much. Shula Prabhupada Ki Jai. Jai. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna, thank you. Thank you very much.